For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Right, so we are in Luke chapter 18. And we've been in this really long section of Luke. We're coming down to the end of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. It started way back in chapter 9. As we come to the end of the road, this is probably the final month of Jesus' life. So, you know, that went by pretty quick. And so here we are, we're sitting here, and the king who's been predicted for thousands of years in the past is finally nearing the end of his march to Jerusalem where he will fulfill his destiny. And this trip to Jerusalem is different. He's taken a lot of trips to Jerusalem over the course of his life. This one was going to be different. All of his friends knew it. They could tell that this was Jesus coming to do what he came to do, which in their mind was to set up his kingdom, which was to throw off Roman rule, and which was to, set, to usher in the new age, the eternal age, the, mess, the age of the Messiah, the age of the Savior. Jesus had a different idea in mind. He, we left us uh, last week with this verse, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And that's exactly what Jesus is going to do. He's going to be exalted. But that's only because he's going to go lower than anyone has ever gone before or since. He's going to go to the cross. And he's going to die and he's going to pay for sins so that there will be people in his kingdom someday when he sets it up. And tonight what we're going to see are four different people seeking out the king. We're going to learn what it means to be a seeker. And you know, here he is, you know, as he's headed into Jerusalem, uh, people know his popularity is swelling and people are flocking to him again. And so we're going, to, we're going to learn some things about seeking out Christ. So our first seeker is actually not a single person, but it's a group. It's some little kids. It says people were also bringing even babies. So little kids and even their babies, they were bringing them to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. But when the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. They said, get out of here. Oh, we talked back in Luke 9 some about the attitudes they had toward, toward kids. There was actually kind of a similar scene back in Luke 9. Kittle writes this. He says, at most, an odd Talmud anecdote might tell of a scholar spending time with a child, but... It's regarded as a waste of time. Morning sleep, midday wine, chattering with children, and tarrying in places where men of the common people assemble, these are what destroy a man. That was said to be how to waste your life. Sleeping all morning, drinking for lunch, <laughs> hanging out with kids, and wait, just hanging around where common people assemble. And, you know, kids had very low value back then. Very, basically, they were basically non-persons. Part of that was because a lot of kids wouldn't even live into adulthood. And so the disciples, they were really just reflecting the attitudes of their day. You know, they were like, um, excuse me, this is a very important rabbi here. He doesn't have time for your kids. Yes, that means includes your baby, ma'am. You know, this is the, the future king. This is not a daycare worker. So if you could just move it along... Jesus, though, instead of rebuking the kids, rebukes the disciples. He called the children to him, and he said, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. He says, Would you guys quit trying to keep the kids away from me? They are not getting it. 
He says, truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. So what's the point here? Jesus, first of all, the point is that Jesus obviously loved kids. You could just see it. Any chance he gets, he's, he's getting around the kids. He grew up, he had a number of younger brothers and sisters, so he would have grown up in a household where there was probably always a baby around. And Jesus knew he was not going to be able to take a wife and to have kids of his own. And I imagine that probably made him sad. He knew why, but it would still be sad. And so I imagine that any chance he got to hang out with some kids, he took it. Another thing Jesus would do is he would shock the grown-ups by telling them that they needed to learn from the kids. <laughs> he does this multiple times in his ministry. And, you know, there are certain things that we shouldn't learn from kids, right? Uh, it's not that all children are completely pure and innocent. I mean, kids can be very cruel, selfish, liars. That's why they need parents to teach them not to do those things. Now, he's pointing to... He says, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. So he's pointing to one really cool thing about kids is the way they receive things. You know, when a kid receives something, a child, there's a, there's, there is an innocence to it. There's an excitement about it. You, they're not proud. You know, offer a little kid their favorite flavor of ice cream. They're not going to be like, oh, no, I couldn't possibly... I mean, if they see you with that ice cream, they're like, can I have some ice cream? Can I have some? Can I have some of that? There's no shame. They're not posturing. They're not all about what's proper. They're not trying to be bigger than they are or, you know, um, they're, they're also not cynical. You see, um, you see a cynicism kind of develop as kids get older, but when they're really little, they just, they're excited about whatever. They're so excited to spend time with, with their parents, too. That's something that little kids are especially that way. There's no trying to earn things for little kids. I mean, they have no money. I mean, remember when you were little finding out how much it costs to like pay the electric bill each month or what a car cost? You're like, $15,000. You're like, I have 70 cents. <laughs> They're totally helpless. And, what, and we, we talked about this at, at greater length back in Luke 9, so I won't say any more about it, but what Jesus is saying is, if you're seeking my kingdom, you need to receive it like a child and not try to earn it like a grown-up. They're coming to him, they're seeking him, they're receiving from him. Jesus said, I wish more people would approach me in this way. Such a grown-up, self-righteous posturing that, that God, uh, Jesus gets from so many people. The childlike approach is pretty refreshing. So we can learn something about seeking from these kids, too. Let's look at our next seeker. This is a rich, young ruler. And here, Luke, uh, all the material in this journey has been unique to Luke. Here he finally rejoins Matthew and Mark and tells some familiar stories, ground that they also cover with a little bit of a different slant on it. A certain ruler asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. So what's up with that answer? Is Jesus being a jerk? You're like, good morning, Jesus. He's like, what's so good about it? 
nothing is good but God alone. You're like, okay. <laughs> now, he's not being a jerk. He's also not denying his deity. Some people think this is a plain denial that Jesus is God. That's a very superficial reading of this. If you come away with that, that's not at all what he's saying. No, what he's doing here is he's trying to get this guy to reflect on what he means by good. See, Jesus keys, keys in on that word, good. You know, he's saying, okay, when you say good, and when you talk about earning or inheriting eternal life, um, what do you mean by that? Because if you mean good in the sense of moral perfection, then surely you must know that no one is good in that sense except for God alone. But I noticed there, sir, that you called me good. And so if no one is good except for God alone, and you're calling me good, can you connect the dots there for me? It's actually an affirmation of the deity of Christ. Because no one's good but God, and Jesus is good, morally good. He's actually the only morally perfect human ever to have lived. And so in that sense, he's trying to help him reflect on the nature of Christ and the nature of God and what does, it mean, what does he mean by good. In another sense, he's also calling into question this guy's use of the word good. He's saying, you know, you're using the word good, but I, I do not think it means what you think it means. <laughs> he's saying, you know, if you're thinking good like, like you're good, like you could possibly be good enough to inherit eternal life or you could do something. What must I do that you could do something to make you good enough to inherit eternal life, you need to re-examine your definition for good because nobody is good but, for, but God alone. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so <clears throat> Jesus is, you know, he says that to this guy. And he says, well, you know, why don't you keep the commandments and you'll live. And the guy's like, which ones? And so Jesus is like, well, I mean, you know the commandments, right? Commandment number six, don't commit adultery. Number seven, you shall not murder. Number eight, you shall not steal. Number nine, you shall not give false testimony. And number five, number 10 is do not covet. He jumps back to number five. I think that's intentional. Honor your father and mother. The rest of these are more external. Coveting is a matter of the heart. Jesus leaves that one off the list for now. He's going to see if this guy can figure it out without number 10 in there. And so here we have the commandments. And as we talked about last week, the religious are always trying to reduce the law to something they can keep. Like that Pharisee last week who went into the temple to pray about how righteous he was. You know, he, he thought he was, he, was, he was claiming that he kept the law, but he, he was not keeping the law. You know, something like don't murder. I mean, this guy probably had not committed a murder. And in fact, probably most of us in this room could say, I've never murdered anybody. However, Jesus in Matthew 5 says, well, what about that selfish, angry thought in your heart? I mean, maybe you didn't carry that all the way out to actual murder, but the, the roots of murder go all the way down into your heart, and God requires truth in the inner person. He requires perfection all the way down to the heart level. So even that thought, that angry, unrighteous, angry thought, that's enough to render you guilty and send you to hell. Adultery. 
He says, so what if you haven't committed adultery? He says, a lustful thought in your heart's enough to send you to hell. And so Jesus wipes away there, reducing the law to something they can keep. He's always, we've seen a number of these interactions. He's raising the bar back up. And what he's trying to do is lead them to the only proper response to the law, which is what we saw from the tax collector, sinner, last week, where he falls on his face and he says, have mercy on me, O Lord, a sinner. That's the, only, that's the right response when Jesus rolls out the law for this guy. But that's not how this guy responds. Instead, he holds his head up high and says, all of these I have kept since I was a boy. <laughs> really? Well, that's interesting. He must obviously be using the watered-down version of good, the good that he's decided in his own mind. And... I want you to notice, too, the insecurity beneath the religious pride. The religious person, on the one hand, is always trying to puff themselves up and talk about how great they are. But at the same time, if he's so confident of his own self-righteousness, if he's so confident that he's going to have eternal life, what's the point of this conversation? Why is he coming to Jesus and asking him if he already knows all the answers? In fact, in Matthew's version, he says, I've kept all these. What else do I need to do? And so he's claiming to be this perfection, and yet he knows deep down that he's not. And maybe some of you can relate to this. On the one hand, you're puffing yourself up and trying to convince yourself you're really a pretty good person. I'm not as bad as that person. But at the same time, deep down, there's this splinter of guilt that you cannot remove. And Jesus is saying the reason you feel guilty is because you are guilty. And you can't wipe that away. Only God can remove that guilt. You know, this guy is not receiving the kingdom like a child. He's trying to earn it like a grown-up. It's very different from that childlike seeker, the childlike receivers that we saw earlier in this chapter. This guy is not seeking out Jesus either. He's seeking to justify himself. And so he's neither a true seeker nor the right kind of receiver. And so Jesus sends one more volley back to try to pierce through this guy's shell of religious pride. And Jesus says, it says, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, there's just one thing you're lacking. Just sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And then you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. You're so concerned about eternal life. Why don't you lay up treasures in heaven and come and follow me? Well, it says when he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. His sadness was in direct proportion to his wealth. And what Jesus does here is he exposes the lie that this guy is really keeping the law because he's violating the first commandment, which is you shall have no other gods before me. And if Christ calls on you to sell everything you have and follow him, which actually some of the disciples had done some form of that, it appears. If Christ calls on you to do that, and you're going to tell them no? That shows what is really on the throne in your heart. It's you and your money. And it's not God. And you do have other gods before him. Jesus looked at him as he walked away. And he said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Remember, they thought rich was a sign of spirituality. It's a sign of God's blessing. And Jesus seems to be saying the exact opposite. In fact, he says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. 
Now, some of us have heard this taught before, and you've heard that there was this gate in Jerusalem called the Needle's Eye. And it was, it was a smaller gate. It was low enough, and the camel was like the biggest animal they, they had around. And in order to get through this gate, a fully loaded camel could not get through. In fact, they would have to unload all the gear, all of the possessions off of the camel, and the camel would have to crawl through kind of on its knees to get through that gate, and then the camel could stand back up. You could load them back up, and they could continue on the journey. Well, I hate to break it to you, but that's completely false. It's like this Bible urban legend. There was no gate called the needle's eye. And uh, what that really makes it sound like is, you know, a camel could make it through the eye of the needle. And what Jesus is saying here is no. A camel cannot make it through the eye of the needle. What he's saying, he's trying to do is he's trying to take the smallest thing he could think of, which is the little eye of a needle that you put your thread through, and then the biggest thing he could think of, which was a camel. And he says, if you can get that camel through there, that's about how hard it is for a rich guy to go to heaven. Now, I mean, technically, you probably could get a camel through the eye of a needle if you had a chipper shredder, (laughs) industrial strength food processor, and an itty-bitty little funnel. You'd probably need some kind of pressurized thing, too. You could probably make it work. But that really misses the point of the humor that Jesus is presenting. This is a a ridiculous illustration that he goes on to clarify when those who heard asked them, who then can be saved? And Jesus says, what's impossible with man is possible with God. Jesus says, in other words, it's impossible. No one can be saved on their own, but with God, it is possible. And so his point here, what is he teaching? First of all, it's that saving yourself is impossible. He comes right out and says it. It's impossible to save yourself, especially while you're trusting in your own riches. But you know, he's not saying all poor people go to heaven. You know, you could just as easily say, it's easier for a poor person to enter the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle on their own. He's not saying that you have to sell everything you have and that's some like ultra good deed that's going to get you to heaven. No. Even that would not be good enough. You'd have to be perfect in every way for your whole life to get to heaven on the basis of works. He's also not saying that Christians need to sell all they have. We read in the early church, the Christians owned things. They had money. They met in Christians' houses. They would, pull, they would donate some of their money to meet needs. Now, the point he's making here is that saving yourself is impossible. And we need to come face to face with that, heart, that stark reality that all of religion denies, and yet Jesus comes to teach the way of truth. No lowering the bar. The bar is high. It's impossible. It's impossible with man, but it is possible with God. In fact, the, the God, who beca- the, the, the God man, Jesus Christ, The Son of God became man, and he's the one who made it possible for us to go to heaven, not by our works, but by his, by putting our trust, our faith in him. Another secondary lesson here is that wealth and power can make it harder to receive Jesus like a child. There's something about wealth that makes you feel pretty self-sufficient, and especially in this culture where they thought it was a sign of spirituality. You know, when you feel like you have something to offer, it's hard to admit you have nothing to offer. It's hard to come and beg for a handout when you've never had to take a handout your whole life. 
And so this guy, while he's trying to earn the kingdom of God like an adult, he needs to really be more like those children that we saw earlier. And since he wasn't, he walked away sad. I always wonder what happened to this guy, though. You know, did he come to his senses later? Did he become a believer in Jesus? I guess we'll find out when we get there. Meanwhile, the disciples are kind of freaking out. Peter said, but we've left all we had to follow you. And Jesus says, truly, I tell you, no one who's left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. So he says, look, Peter, I know you guys have already received the kingdom and you've actually given up a lot to follow me and to become my, my disciples. You've come to, 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 to learn under me how to serve God. And he says, God is going to reward you for that. What's pretty cool is when it comes to when we receive Christ, he wipes out all of our sins. And so then anything we do for him in his power, you know, and he's got a whole system to evaluate our works. In fact, we'll talk about this more next week, treasures in heaven. So I'm not going to say too much about it here. But he basically wipes out all of our our evil deeds and he rewards us for our good deeds. And so he doesn't give us what we deserve, which is hell. Then he gives us what we don't deserve, which is heaven and a whole lot more on top of that. Both in this life, we get tons of blessings. Of course, the Mark version says you'll receive many times as much in this age, but also persecutions in this age. So there's suffering. But you get such a rich life. It's an incredible life that we get to live for God. And then we die and we go to heaven, and it gets even better. Of course, Jesus takes this opportunity to remind them, to warn them about what's coming here in just a few short weeks. He took them aside and told them, we're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that's written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. All the Old Testament predictions about his suffering and death and resurrection, those will be fulfilled. He must pay for sin. He'll be delivered to the Gentiles. They'll mock him. They'll insult him. They'll spit on him. They'll flog him and kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. Of course, the disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them. And they didn't know what he was talking about. (laughs) Luke says it three different ways. Triply ignorant. They're like, I wonder what he means. It's some kind of spiritualization. Is it an allegory? Maybe, maybe if we take the letters and add up the numbers that the letters represent, <laughs> we can figure out what does Jesus really mean here? They couldn't see that he was as literal as po- you could possibly be. He would really be arrested, really flogged, real spit. Real, and then real death and real resurrection is what he's going to experience. And I do think it's interesting how at the, for the second coming of Christ, there's a, lot of, there's a whole other body of predictions. And so many scholars go through and they spiritualize every single one of them. There, What's the symbolism and the allegories? And what does this number represent? I think when, when Jesus comes back a second time, I think we're going to find that those are quite literal. So many of them that were spiritualized away by the learned, I think are actually going to turn out to be a lot more literal than anybody imagined. Which brings us to our third seeker, 
a blind guy. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. Now, I need to take a quick pause here. A lot of scholars will look at this and be like, see, the Bible's full of errors. If you read Mark and Matthew's account of this, it says, as he was leaving Jericho, he met this blind guy who he's going to heal. Spoiler alert. (laughs) But see, Luke says it was as he was approaching Jericho. See, the Bible is full of errors and can't be trusted. Well, before you go around losing your faith over something as silly as this, maybe you should learn what modern archaeology has discovered for us. D.A. Carson puts it pretty well. Which was it? Was he entering Jericho? Was he leaving Jericho? Carson tells us, in this period, there were two Jerichos. An older town on the hill, which had been destroyed... And then there was, it was largely in ruins, uninhabited. And then the new Herodian town about one mile away. In this view, Matthew and Mark, under Jewish influence, these are books written more to Jews, mention the old town Jesus was leaving. That's the Jericho they would have known. Luke, the Greek Hellenist, refers to the new one, since he's writing to the Greeks, which Jesus is entering. Boom. Bet you never thought there were two Jerichos. I bet that probably sounded like a pretty silly solution until they found both Jerichos. Just to show, if you find what looks like a contradiction or some kind of Bible difficulty, do some research. You probably will find the answer. Occasionally when you can't, what I usually say is, huh, well, all the other ones that I've come across, I've found a pretty good answer for most of them, and maybe next time I read this, I'll figure it out and move on. So anyway, Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. I mean, he doesn't know what's going on. And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Okay, this blind guy, this, apparently there's evidence later in this story that there was a period in his life when he could see, and then he lost his, his sight somehow, which might be even worse than being born blind because you know what it's like to see and then to have that shut off forever, and then you, you can't work, starving, this is before any kind of government social aid for people with disabilities like this, and so he just sits there hoping someone will, will give him food so he doesn't die of starvation. But then one day... He's sitting there and he hears commotion and he just happens to be on the road that Jesus is marching down as he heads up toward Jerusalem for his final trip to Jerusalem. And this guy had heard some things about Jesus apparently because as soon as he hears the name Jesus of Nazareth, he starts shrieking out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Doesn't know where Jesus is, but just starts screaming at the top of his lungs, hoping that maybe Jesus will hear, realizing this may be his last chance to ever be delivered from his affliction. So he begins crying out. He calls him son of David. The only guy in Luke to call Jesus that. That's an Old Testament term. The Old Testament predicted that the great King David, who lived in 1000 BC, would one day have a son who would sit on the throne forever, forever. And he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and his government will have no end. 
This promise is referred to on page after page in the Old Testament. It's hard to go more than a page or two without being reminded of God's promise to David or some form of it. And this guy is calling Jesus the son of David, the Messiah, the eternal one. Those who led the way rebuked him. So the leaders of Jesus' party here, probably the disciples again, just like they did with the little kids, they tell the blind guy to shut up. And he didn't stop. It just made him shout all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. I like this guy. (laughs) This is very different from the rich young ruler, isn't it? It's a lot more like those kids. The childlike approach. He's not trying to earn anything. He's calling out for mercy. He sounds a lot more like that tax collector we saw last week as well. Calling out for mercy. And, um, you know, it doesn't matter if other people are trying to stop him. And maybe some of us here, maybe your, your friends, your family, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, they're giving you a hard time about going out to these Bible studies. Look, you, you can't let that stop you. If other people want to ruin their lives, that's their prerogative. You need to worry about living your life. You're the one that's going to have to answer to God someday for your life. And so you can't let other people do your thinking for you. You've got to seek and not allow yourself to be deterred. You can't even let me do your thinking for you. You've got to make your own decision on this and be convinced of that. And you can't let other people stop you. This blind guy, he's a seeker. He powers right through other people. He doesn't let his, his, own, his own physical limitations stop him. He's calling out with all of his heart. And Jesus hears him. And he stops. And instead of rebuking him, he ordered the man to be brought to him, probably by the very people that were trying to shush him. And when he came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? I mean, that seems like kind of an obvious question, right? The guy probably wants to have his sight restored. But, you know, there's a guy in John 5 who'd been lame for 38 years, Jesus walks up to him. He's like, you want to be healed? And the guy's like, man, I got such a raw deal. Nobody ever helps me. He just starts complaining about his life. Some people, I don't think they want to be healed. I think they want to feel sorry for themselves. Not this guy. Of course, what would the rich young ruler do in this situation? What do you want me to do for you? Well, good teacher, What good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? I've kept all the commandments. None of that. Lord, I want to see. I want to see again is literally the word. And Jesus said to him, see again. Your faith has healed you or your faith has saved you. Immediately he received his sight and he followed Jesus, praising God. And when all the people saw it, they also praised God. Notice, too, there's no more, okay, don't tell anybody that I healed you. Don't go around saying this son of David thing. Jesus was saying that earlier in the gospel. No more hiding. The guy who was calling on the Messiah is marching right down behind him, healed of his blindness and rejoicing and praising God for all to see. This brings us to our final seeker, a guy named Zacchaeus. (laughs) Jesus entered Jericho, the new one, the inhabited one, and was passing through. 
But a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was wealthy. Okay, not just a tax collector. This, is, this guy is like the head of the, the, the food chain. The Roman government, what they would do is they would bid out regions, tax districts, they would bid those out to the highest bidder. And then whoever won the contract would have to pay the money up front, and then they would hire tax collectors and collect the money after the fact. This is one of those guys probably who would have won the bids. So he would have hired many, many tax collectors, and they would have blanketed this very well-traveled trade route heading out east of Jerusalem. And so it's no surprise that he was very wealthy. This, if, if a normal tax collector was despised, imagine how much this guy was hated. He's like the king of the tax collectors, the king of the thieves. Wicked, robber, liar, betrayer of his countrymen. But he'd heard about Jesus. And in fact, it says he wanted to see who Jesus was because he was short and couldn't see over the crowd. I hate when that happens. <laughs> so here he is, he's like in the back, he's like trying to see. Zacchaeus, he was a wee little man. <laughs> and a wee little man was he, as the, as the song goes. And so he ran ahead. And he climbed up a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. Not a very tall tree. I mean, he only needed like a foot, probably. So here he is, you know, he's like a foot or two off the ground, looking at Jesus. And Jesus, he's walking down through the crowd, and all of a sudden he looks up. And there's this little guy in a tree. <laughs> Talk about seeking. That's pretty good. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up. <laughs> and he said, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I'm going to stay at your house today. <laughs> now, what does Zacchaeus say? Is he like, well, you know, my... Um, Good teacher, um, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I've kept all the commandments since I was a youth. <laughs> no. Not rich young ruler. Much more like the little... He's not trying to earn this thing like an adult. He's receiving it like a little child. Jesus is like, you want some ice cream? He's like, oh, ice cream! <laughs> In fact, he said, you know, he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. We start to see a real difference here. You know, the rich young ruler, he walked away sad. Zacchaeus, next thing you know, he's walking home with Jesus, with his heart full of joy and gladness. This is what grace does to people. He's not, I've kept all the commandments since I was a youth like the tax collector, and even more than the one we saw last week. He would have come down from the tree, maybe with tears in his eyes, and said, I have been a rotten sinner. I've cheated so many people. I've sold people out. I, don't, I deserve judgment. And I can't believe that you are looking up at me 
and calling me down and wanting to come to my house. Well, all the people saw this, and they began to mutter. Grumble, grumble, grumble. <laughs> He's gone to be the guest of a sinner. Same thing they were saying back in Luke 15 when he told the parable of the prodigal son. Zacchaeus probably knew the, the kind of scrutiny he would get. He knew this was coming. But look how he responds. He stood up and he said to the Lord, not to them, he said, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount. Whoa. That'd be a lot of cheating that he'd done and a lot of payouts that he would have to do. In fact, four times is way beyond what the law required. For voluntary restitution, you had to pay back what you stole plus 20%. He's paying back for 100%. That's a lot more. So you start to see the impact of grace here. Grace doesn't just do the bare minimum, not even that. Grace melts your heart as you realize how little you deserve. You see the kindness of God you see how you have joy. You see the peace that God has granted you. Some people are afraid that if we, if we start preaching grace, people are going to sin even more. It's not the effect it's having in Zacchaeus' life. No, he's going above, way beyond what the law ever required. He's doing a lot more than that rich young ruler did. Remember how he walked away sad? He loved his money too much. He couldn't give away what he owned because what he owned really owned him. On the other hand, Zacchaeus, you know, giving, giving that much money away wouldn't have left very much for him, but he's like, I don't care. What I've got now is so much more valuable than all that money that I basically stole. He's excited about his new life with Christ. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. And he says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus said, I, I was sent first to the lost sheep of Israel. And this guy's one of them. He's made a lot of mistakes, but he's one of them. And I came for people like him. I came for anyone who's willing to admit that they're lost. Anyone who's willing to respond to the offer that Jesus makes, can I come over? Can I have dinner with you? Can I sit down? Will you open the door and let me in and we'll sit down and have a meal together? Will you receive the forgiveness that I'm offering you? And that's the final thing we need to re remember in conclusion, is that God wants you to seek him. He wants you to come to him, not trying to earn it, earn the kingdom like an adult, but to receive it like a child. And we're not just passively sitting there and, you know, God, just come and get me and, you know, God is just going to make me do this. No, there, there's, there's something he wants on our part. He wants us to take a step toward him. But never forget, that's nothing compared to what he has done to seek you. He's the one who came to earth to seek and save that which was lost. In each of these three seekers, the kids, the blind man, Zacchaeus, he's the one that passed by where they were. 
He's the one, when others tried to stop him from coming to Jesus, he's the one who cleared them out of the way. He's the one who engaged them in conversation, and he is the one who granted them salvation, who welcomed them into the kingdom. And that's what God wants to do for you. He's the one who's come into your life. He loves you. God sent his son to die for you, to seek and save the lost. And so are you going to keep trying to earn it like an adult? Or are you willing to receive what he's trying to give you like a little child? And that's it on our four seekers here. Yes, Lord, you came to seek and save that which was lost, Lord. You came to seek and save us. And God, we know that doesn't mean that we don't do anything. Thank you that you... But, but we thank you, God, that you have made it possible for us to turn to you. And God, we thank you that you don't call on us to, to be a certain you know, level of righteousness or do certain good works, Lord. But you just want us to receive the righteousness and the good works that you've already done. And you want to lead us into greater good works than the law could ever motivate us or empower us to do, Lord. You want us to live our lives under grace. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.